0: When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me for this episode is me, Pastor Ed Treat. My producer, Marshall Saunders, insisted it was time for me to tell my story, and so
1: today, he will be interviewing me. Welcome to the show. My name is Marshall Saunders. I'm the producer here at Minnesota Podcasting. I work with Pastor Ed Treat on the production of the show, and Pastor Ed is here. I'm on the other side of the microphone interviewing him today, and Ed recently vacated his call as senior pastor at a church in Bloomington, Minnesota, to develop the Center of Addiction and Faith, a ministry that seeks to awaken faith communities to the issue of addiction and ways they can and should respond. After several podcast episodes that we've uh, produced, I told him that we need to hear his story, and so he has agreed to share it today. How are you, Ed? I'm good, Marshall. Thank you. How does it feel to be on the uh, the hot seat? It's uh, kind of funny because you know <laughs> when I do the interviews, I just kind of sit back
0: and let him talk. So right now, I got to be on my toes. Now here. you got to perform. <laughs> That's, right. That's the way it
1: goes. Yeah. So, kind of the format of these shows is that we. What do you say to your guest that uh, you talk about where you... What it was like, what happened, and what is it like now? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we want to know from you.
0: Yeah. Well, that comes out of 12-step tradition. That's kind of the, the way people in recovery think about how they tell their story. Because people in recovery tell their story over and over again. And there's power in that story. And you think about uh, the stories we tell. Um, most of our faith traditions are based on this ancient story of God's redemption. And those stories aren't ancient; they're they're, they're sure. going on all the time. And, right. and uh, when we tell our stories, we see God at work, and it's how God's uh, God's uh, actions so get so powerfully revealed in our stories. Yeah. And so I always say I love to tell my story because it's not my story; it's God's story of redemption. Yeah. And so
1: and that's why they are so meaningful to so many people at so many p- different places in the world, different places in their life different circumstances, it can still hold a lot of meaning because they are universal stories, aren't they?
0: They really are. They're the human story. And and for me as a pastor all these years, and also in recovery, that's been part of my lament is that um, the church is great at telling the ancient story, but it's not a place for modern mm-hmm. uh, redemption stories. And I, it just feels like that's a mistake. Right. The church ought to be the place where we're telling these stories over and over again, because they're powerful and they're, they're sacred. Well, that's what we're
1: here doing. Yeah,
0: we are. (laughs) It is. I mean, that's, uh, you know, when you you, Marshall invited me to do this, and I'm so grateful for you for, you know, you're you're helping me do this ministry in so many powerful ways. But uh, when you got me started on this, I remember listening to them. uh, You know, it's funny because when you're making them, you don't know how it's going to work. and, And then they're done, and you download them on your phone and listen as you're driving. My wife and I would listen together. And we'd both go, wow, those are really good. Yeah. Really really moving, really powerful.
1: This will be the first big clinker in the yeah, That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know they can't all be good. That's right. <laughs> so tell us what uh, what was it like for you? Well, um
0: and every every uh, recovering person who tells a story has to decide how much to say and how much not to say because sure. we could. You've probably noticed this, Marshall by now, every guest can just go on and on. <laughs> we do get good at telling these stories. But I, I, you know, my story is I grew up in a, a military family. My dad was in the military. My parents met in Fort Knox, Kentucky, where uh, where I was born. Uh, my mom was a, a, a citizen working there as a young girl. And her job was to put together the military IDs for the soldiers. Hmm. And my dad came in one day and she thought he was cute. So she messed his up on purpose. So he'd have to come <laughs> back and it worked. So he came back, they got married and he converted to the Catholic faith. And as a uh, good convert, he started making babies like good Catholics do. Sure. So there were six boys and two girls in my family and I'm number six down the line and we moved all the time my dad was in Vietnam a couple of times in Korea once um, we lived in Germany in Fort Worth Texas we just were moving if mm. we weren't just arriving we were just moving and really my mom says we moved uh, 32 times in 20 years wow I know that's incredible <laughs> dragging eight kids around too so yeah think of, think of that um, so we uh, finally, dad, retired in mid-60s. We moved to Bellingham, Washington, which is where we finally settled for for the first time. And I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And I kind of so called it. How,
1: how old were you when that uh, I was in role. the fourth grade. OK.
0: Um, so <clears throat> my older siblings, who, who had only known military life up until then, had to adjust to the civilian life. And it was in the 60s and everybody had long hair then. And Mm -hmm. my poor brothers came in with these military buzz cuts and, Mm. you know, it was a tough adjustment for them. I was young enough where it didn't get me as bad. But, you know, the experience of moving a lot, and I don't know how it was for my siblings, but I know, you know, I've examined my past quite a bit. Experience of moving a lot made it hard for me to um, put down roots. You know, I just always thought we're going to be moving. Why get invested? And, So that's sort of been one of my bags that I carry through life is that shaped me in a way that makes it uh, I have to be a lot more intentional about staying committed to things and getting bonded and putting down roots. Uh, But anyway, so I grew up from um, fourth grade on in Bellingham, Washington. It was a great town to grow up in. Uh, But uh, my drug and alcohol experience began at age 12, Hmm. uh, middle school. And uh, my friend up the street stole some McNaughton's from his dad, and we mixed it with my mom's Pepsi Cola in a mason jar. And I just remember the feeling of that first time I drank. You know, I in my family, it was just full of... Uh, I thought it was normal at Sony after an adult. I'd gone back to figure it out that it wasn't normal at all. It was pretty chaotic, and it was very judgmental, and uh, there wasn't a lot of grace. My dad was sort of like, you know, the sound of music, The the uh, uh, he blows the whistle and the right. kids line up. So that was my dad's idea of how to raise kids. And my mom's was to let them run. And so my dad was always gone. And so she would just, you know, we would be uh, bad soldiers while, you know, and out of control. And he would come home and try to whip us into shape. And so we were sure. getting just whipped back and forth in terms of how we were raised and what the rules were. And and I kind of grew up with this, this constant fear, you know, that I was going to get in trouble for something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was sort of hung over me. And, and, I never knew when I was going to get in trouble. It could be for the slightest infraction. And, and the trouble was bad. Dad would whip us. He would raise welts and he'd make us go pick the belt. And so it was kind of a hostile environment I grew sure. up with. And, and it was a pecking order too. And so me being down far down on the list, I grew up with this, uh, you know, always watching my back, kind of uh, living in a, you know, not a grace-filled environment but a, a hostile environment. So when I drank for that first time mm-hmm. – um, I was at peace. I mean, it it fixed me. It just warmed me from bottom to top, and and I wasn't self conscious. I wasn't afraid, um, and I felt I felt happy. I felt cool. I felt you know mm-hmm. totally non self conscious. It just really did did it for me. And I just knew that I didn't make a, a conscious decision, but I, if there was alcohol around, I wanted some of it. Sure. And, uh, in fact, I, um, uh, me and the other kids in my neighborhood kind of were uh, all toward that. You know, we were those kinds of kids who didn't have a lot of good parenting. And we kind of ran wild. And, and we did just about everything that came along, marijuana, speed, LSD, mushrooms, you know, whatever came along, we tried it. I used to laugh at that saying back in those days. They said, you know, if you use drugs and alcohol, it will stunt your growth. <laughs> and uh, we used to laugh at that saying, oh, yeah, right, that's what adults say. But after I got into recovery uh, at age 27, what I learned was that I was it didn't stunt my physical growth, right. but I was stunted. And uh, here I was, 27 years old. And what I believe is, is that my emotional and mental capabilities or uh, my abilities to cope with life, or my emotional mostly, had stopped when I started using those drugs. I mm. mean, it was already in bad shape because of the house I grew up in, but sure. then... I stopped learning how to deal with emotions and, and drugs. Why,
1: why develop those skills? Because now you, that is the way you deal with it. So th- there is no need right. for another yeah. skill, right? And, <laughs>
0: and those things worked. I mean, right. they, were, they were very effective. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how effective they were to not have to feel. And so, <laughs> so I sobered up, and I thought, I don't know how to deal with emotions. I'm 27, and now I have the emotional capabilities of a 12-year-old. Hmm. And so everything was, everything was hard emotionally. Sure. And that's the long, hard process of recovery for, for many of us who just have to learn to face life on life's terms and deal with the emotions of life. And, you know, that's the thing about a 12-step group, 12-step fellowships that happens is that you learn, um, you learn to interact with other adults and deal with life challenges emotionally. And you have this support system. You know, there's, a, there's an incredible uh, uh, research study that was done with RATS. Called the Rat Park Study, I think. Um, I don't know it real well, so I probably shouldn't be citing it. But I know it well enough to know the the, the implication of it. Um, they, uh, you've heard of studies where they put rats in a cage with a with right. wa- with a bottle of water and a bottle of a drug of some kind, and the rats will inevitably uh, kill themselves by overdosing. They'll hmm. just they'll just get addicted and and use the drug until they die. But the uh, I can't remember the name of the scientists, but. Um, you can look it up, it's not hard to find, uh, said, well, wait a minute, I would probably take the drugs too if I was a, a rat alone in a cage. Right. What if we were to create a more realistic scenario, put them in with other rats to hang out with? So a they community. Could, a yeah. community. Right. Uh, toys to play with, some purpose in life, right. um, relationships They can have sex and they can do all right. the things right. that give life meaning. And uh, they found that the rats hardly ever... They, did, they would occasionally try the, the drug-laced water, but Never did they overdose, and, and never did they kill themselves. And so it was like really stunning. And so what you realize is that how important community is and why 12-step groups are so essential for people in the recovery process. Because it's uh, through addiction, in, and I would say this is probably true of every form of addiction, that, you know, everything from alcohol to opioids to uh, workaholism and codependency, all the, all the ways addiction takes forms. They all lead to a life of isolation.
1: Right. They isolate you. Yep. They do. Absolutely. They,
0: uh, yeah. You know, you think about it, uh, the Bible, the, when Adam and Eve ate the apple and did what they were not supposed to do, the first thing they did was cover up and hide. Right. And, uh, and that's what we do, and that's what addiction does, is it makes us isolate and hide. We hide from God, but I think that means we also hide from each other, and it's sure. kind of synonymous and so the route to uh, you know the isolation process of recovery puts us into hiding and to come out of hiding is about building those relationships in that community and some of us need to learn that in a in a very basic environment like a 12-step group where yeah. you just learn some
1: you know how to how to share yourself sure so what so this brings you into your late teens right yeah,
0: yeah. so all the way through high school i partied uh, my reputation was a party animal i had uh, i think one nickname I had was Woodstock. I had long hair and dark glasses and sure. wore hippie shirts. And um, I was always stoned and I mm-hmm. knew where to get pot and I knew where the parties were. And I was at the parties every chance I could get. And um, and I kind of relished that image. That was, you know, mm-hmm. I was happy with that.
2: Sure,
0: um, Graduated high school in... Um, and I had some consequences there, and and you know I had uh, I got hit. I got, we were so high one time. We took pills and drank booze, and I I did a hit and run. It was a school bus in the football game parking lot, hmm. and I did twenty seven dollars of damage to the wheel well of a school bus and took off. And so I got arrested and for hit and run driving, sure, and uh, had to go to. Uh, drinking i had to go to court and they sent me to a a alcohol evaluation that was my first sort of confrontation that i had a drinking problem but i i was able to dismiss that as uh, i was just a bad day bad break i graduated high school in 1977 and i decided i needed to go somewhere cool Mm. Um, and i got on a plane at age 17 i flew to maui Nice. And uh, spent three years on Maui. <laughs> that I,
1: is pretty cool.
0: It was. <laughs> it was pretty cool uh, for a 17-year-old kid. And the drinking age on Maui was 18, so I could drink wow. like an adult, you know. Right. I was in the bars every night. And I don't remember much of Maui. I just know <laughs> <laughs> <Kind> of <blurred. laughs> it, was a, it was a party, yeah, just uh, three years of partying. And it's kind of funny. I got, um, after being there for a couple of years, I, I just sort of woke up one day and thought, my life is not unfolding the way it should. Mm. I mean, I saw other people getting their act together, getting jobs, and getting married and settling down, and, and I was always just sort of, you know, losing jobs and having to move and always broke and couldn't get my my stuff together. And I finally decided what I realized what my problem was. My problem was Maui. Mm. And so, you know, we cut co- we I did what we call a geographical. We blame the where we are, and we move to a, and start over somewhere new. And so I did a couple geographicals. Um, I moved to San Diego and hooked up with my brother. And it didn't take long to out, uh, stay my welcome there. Mm. He was living with his girlfriend. And I was on the couch for about two months before she finally said, you need yeah. to tell your brother to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was uh, drunk and, you know, looking for fun constantly. That's all I did. I moved to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I spent a couple of years in Phoenix, and uh, don't remember much of that. Um, and then I finally moved back to Bellingham and spent my remaining uh, years of using there. And that, and then it just progressively got worse. I didn't care, you know. In no. fact, I remember driving to work some mornings thinking, you know, if I went off the road and died, that would be a relief. Mm-hmm. You know, it would just be a lot easier than living my life. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, if I didn't die, I'd be in the hospital and I could get drugs. (laughs) And so for me— It's a win-win. It was a win-win. And I just thought, oh, that's got to be like heaven, be in a hospital room with a—you know, maybe one of those uh, push-button opium. Whatever you want. And then a nurse who brings you food. You
1: watch TV. You don't have to work. Blah. During this period when you moved back to Washington, what was your relationship with your parents? Were they there? Were you moving back home or near them?
0: Yeah. No, my mom— uh, didn't want me home anymore. She made that clear. She said, yeah. "Don't come back home." Um, after my last come back home, um, sure. So I, I just, you know, you find places to live. You just—I don't know sure. how I did it, quite frankly, because I just—I right. marvel at that because um, I, I didn't have my act together. I couldn't save money. I couldn't. Uh, my life was totally unmanageable. Yeah. But I would just, you know, I knew how to just get by. You know, I'd get a job. I'd make money. I'd find someone who needed a roommate or. Somebody let me crash on their couch for a while. I mean, mm-hmm. just I just dragged through life, and I was a bum. But then uh, my you asked about my relationship with my parents. My mom, uh, back up my brother, went off to treatment. Hmm. And I remember thinking, good, he needs it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came back from treatment, and he, he moved in with me. I, he needed a place to stay. I said, yeah, move in with me. And if you're in your disease and you're you know, far along in your disease, you, you don't want to live with somebody who's getting well because right. it really does. So annoying. <laughs> oh, man. I would wake up with hangovers and he'd be smiling, freshly showered, drinking a cup of tea. And I'd just go, oh, God, I don't want to see you. Yeah. <laughs> and he would say uh, he was going to go to a meeting. Did I want to come? He was trying to get me to mm-hmm. go to a meeting. And I would, I would be like, um, no, I don't want to do that. And I'd say, how long do you have to go to those meetings? I mean, you're still going? Mm -hmm. And he'd say, oh, for about an hour. (laughs) Well, I finally went to a meeting with him, and uh, he talked me into it. And I thought I was going because he just was miserable and wanted company. You know, I I thought of his life as a recovering person was somebody who wanted what I had, the
1: ability to party and, you know. Right. But he didn't know how to handle it. But he couldn't handle it, so he
0: had to spend the rest of his life not being able to do what he wanted to do. And I thought it felt like a sentence to me. Sure. And I thought I had the good life and he had the the icky one and that was how, right. you know, how bad my eyesight was. But so I thought, oh, the poor guy, I should at least go to a meeting. He keeps inviting me. I should go. So I was going there out of support for him, not knowing he was trying to get me to a meeting. Sure. And, uh, and I think he probably said to the chairperson, um, we got a newcomer here. Right. And... Uh, Circle the wagon. (laughs) Well, if you're a newcomer at a meeting, what happens is everybody talks to you Uh and tries to tell you, you know, why you need to be there. Uh And I just was dying because – and I was like – I wanted to stop the meeting and say, no, no, I'm here for my brother. I don't have this problem. Right. And – but they all kept talking to me about what, you know, what was going to happen to me if I didn't and, you Mm -hmm. know, and all this stuff. And I was just dying and I thought, oh, my God, it's going to come to me. I'm going to have to share. And I remember thinking about uh, listening to those people share, and I had such a mixed emotions, but one of the thoughts was, these people are amazing.
2: Hmm.
0: I mean, that, that guy's been in jail, he's been, you know, I mean, he just looks like he's been through the worst experiences of life, and he's happy, smiling, he's mm-hmm. laughing, he's hilarious, and he can just talk. He just can talk from his heart. Mm-hmm. And I just, I thought, man, how does he do that? I Mm. could never do that. I was just terrified to say, I'll pass. I don't want to talk. That, you know, had butterflies and adrenaline flowing through me just to say that. But they spoke a language that was attractive, but it terrified me because I didn't know how to speak it uh, because I was hiding so much, you know. I remember the other feeling I had at that first meeting was, how are they going to know I'm not one? Mm. I mean, it was important to me that they know that I'm not, I don't have this problem. And I remember thinking, what if I see somebody I know? How are they going to know? I mean, I was worried about my image. Right. And turns out later I found out my image wasn't that great. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) thought I needed help. (laughs) But I I did see a guy from high school, a guy named Mark. And after the meeting, he came over and shook my hand and he said, Ed, it's so great to see you here, man. Good thing you made it. You look like shit. (laughs) Wow. And I was like, my brother apologized all the way home for that. Um, he thought it would be, you know, offensive to me. But it got through because oh, really? I, thought, I thought, you know, uh, I thought I, I looked pretty good. I thought I had – I looked like somebody who had his, you know, act together. Mm-hmm. And I, I, to, to have somebody could see how I felt on the inside was – it shook me. You
1: thought you were faking a lot better than I you thought, were. <laughs> I thought my mask
0: was better than that. But sure. so I, somebody saw through my mask and uh, it was really disturbing. And I spent the next year of my life trying to prove them wrong that I didn't have—I w- I was in control, that I, you know, I wasn't out of control. Sure. And it seemed like the harder I tried to control it, the, the less control I had. And I started, you know, it's, if it actually—I don't know if it got worse or I just was more noticing it, but mm-hmm. but I couldn't. Um, I mean, I once was able to go 30 days without drinking, but um, I also know looking back that it was because I got had a prescription of— uh, of Percocet.
2: Hmm.
0: <laughs> and it's easy not to drink right, if you're right. able to take Percocet. So, but yeah, no, I, I, and then I started thinking, oh, those people have psyched me out. You yeah. know, they've, you know, I've allowed myself to be psyched and into thinking I can't control this. And so I, I spent a year fighting it. And then my brother went and poisoned my mom's mind against me. Oh. And uh, she went and got an education. She went to Al Anon and found out what, you know, that all our kids have this problem and that she had this problem. And so she got educated and began to confront me.
1: Did your father, was he an alcoholic or, or did? Yeah, we always say, I always say, you know,
0: my dad didn't have a chance to be alcoholic because he had six kids stealing his booze and watering it down. <laughs> so he never drank. He just drinking water watered. Uh, but no, my dad never had a, an issue with alcohol. He would drink one every once in a while, but he could take or leave it, which is interesting. But um, I would say that he was, uh, he came from a really crazy, sad story family. I mean, he came out of the, he came out of the Dust Bowl in the, uh, in the middle of the, Depression it was just poor as dirt, poor dirt farmer, sure. and uh, his his family. He came; his mother divorced when he was young, which was uh, you know really a shameful thing back then. And he just came from a really tough, tough life. Um, so he really didn't have much to give in terms of emotional caring or support. He was just really about himself. Hmm. But he had this temper; he would just rage. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, there's a, I don't know if there's a real official term for it, but he was like a rageaholic. And so while he wasn't an alcoholic, um, we also say there's like a dry drunk, people who have, who behave uh, erratically and and, um, insanely like an alcoholic does, but he didn't drink. I mean, he didn't Mm -hmm. drink, but he was really a dysfunctional human being. Sure. And so uh, you feel like you, know, you might as well have <laughs> for, for, who, for, you know, the kind of person
1: he was. So your mom confronted you at that point? So okay. she
0: began to say, you know, how's your drinking? Which was, which is a little mini intervention. It's actually something, you know, if you have somebody in your life who's drinking, it's a powerful thing to say. So we're, this we're,
1: wasn't the big sit down, no, the whole was, family surrounding you? I, I never you.
0: had that. And, um, you know, there's questions about, you know, whether that's a you know, good right. model or not. I mean, it is in some cases, but not every case. But there are... There are things that so you mentioned codependency, and yeah. that is people who um, people who are closely emotionally tied to somebody with an addiction problem.
2: Okay,
0: ends up with a separate set of issues that are really mm. harder to put your finger on, but it's called codependency. So you're codependent with with the addiction. You're 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 as attached to that addiction as the addict is, but in a whole different emotional way, mm-hmm. and it and it creates just as much havoc in the codependent's life. Sometimes even more, but it's really hard to get a codependent to see that because it's like, how could this be my problem? All I go right. to work, I get up in the morning, I pay the bills, you know, I I I do everything right. I'm not the one with the problem, and so they don't see how um, this is. Um, impacting them emotionally. But there's a whole <laughs> science mm-hmm. behind it. And anyway, so my mom was a, a pretty severe codependent. She learned about what that was and how that impacts her life. And she took steps to to get well. And part of that was to uh, to not enable. Uh, part of it is part of recovering from codependency is stop being an enabler. And an enabler is somebody who helps somebody perpetuate their addiction rather than Than, uh, than not, and Mm -hmm. so, so, and one of the things codependents don't do is uh, confront properly. And uh, a healthy codependent will learn how to confront properly. Mm. Um, It's one of the things I want to develop in the church, is in terms of uh, how do we as a society and as as faith communities address addiction. And the churches aren't really full of full-blown addicts. I mean, the really bad addicts, but they are full of people who love them. Mm. And th- that means the churches are full of codependence. And if codependence can learn what that means mm-hmm. and how to respond, they could save a lot of lives because sure. um, they, uh, an addict can't save himself. It takes somebody who loves them th- to get in their face. Mm. And so that's why that's so important for us to learn um, those dynamics and the processes involved. But I credit my mom with saving my life. If she didn't start saying, I think you have a problem, and I would defend myself up and down, and I would do it sure. so effectively. She told me later, she would walk away going, well, maybe he doesn't have a problem. Right. I mean, that's how good I had convinced myself. And um, so she would come and say, I think it's your drinking. I think you have a drinking problem. And it's like, no, mom, you always think it's that. It's not. It's, you know, I've got this and I've got that. And I said, you know, I have something going on that I want to fix. There's something wrong with me, but it's not that. I think I do that too much, but it's because, you know, whatever's wrong.
1: Interesting. So So if I could get that— you even saw in yourself that there was an issue. You just didn't think it was that. And that's why when I
0: say uh, those little—you know, I think it's your Mm drinking— Everybody who's got a severe addiction problem knows it's something severely wrong. Mm. They don't want to believe it's that. And they even don't want to believe it that much for they convince themselves. And I had convinced. I didn't think it was that. I really honestly didn't. Mm-hmm. But I knew something was severely wrong. And there was this inner screaming going on. Mm-hmm. this I need help. And here was somebody come along saying, I think you need help. Let me get you help. And you're saying, no, 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 it's not that. Uh, it's like it's the strangest thing cuz you don't want it to be that mm-hmm. because you know with that comes you know those aa meetings and you know abstinence and right. uh, who wants to go there right. you know and besides if you go to an aa meeting uh, uh, you kind of look around the room going i don't want to be one of these people <laughs> you know i right. mean you know these aren't the people who've done the best in life and it, it is kind of funny cuz it turns out they're the finest people in the world but right. they're in disguise <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictionandfaith.com, and click on the donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening and God bless you.
1: like you were saying here's a an adolescent dealing with adult issues the alcoholism was the way that you dealt with that so do you want to go to a group that's taking away the only effective medication that you have for dealing with your life absolutely it's terrifying that's that's the only way i'm getting by absolutely how could how could that be the problem that's the only thing that's fixing me absolutely
0: you you nailed it right on the head that's so that's so exactly right because at some level you know if that's going to be the answer, I can't handle it. Right. It, it's got to be something else. I can't do that. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the whole time you're screaming inside. And so finally, when you do come to that moment where you say, all right, I give, there is this sense of, God, it's finally over.
1: Mm. It's finally over. I don't have to do this anymore. This house of cards. Is yeah. Just, and it's just like you can breathe again. So your mom kept pushing you and pushing yeah. you. Was there one moment or was there one thing yeah. that just...
0: Well, I think it was cumulative, yeah. and uh, but what happened was when I was finally ready, she was the one I went to. Sure. And so um, I lost a job, I got fired, and it was because... Um, I came in hungover, and the boss's wife said something to me because I was hungover and working poorly, and so mm-hmm. she can, said something I didn't like, and I told her to f off, and that doesn't usually help. <laughs> yeah, keep right. Yeah, job. That's, I thought, oh, what's the not big? Not something idiot? you put on your resume, right? <laughs> right? And I thought, oh, big deal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what's the big deal? And when I got fired, and it was devastating. Um, I packed up everything I owned in my Dotson. Remember Dotson's? Yes. And everything I owned at age 27 fit in one, which is depressing in itself. (laughs) And I drove down to Lake Tahoe. Oh, yeah. And an old friend of mine from high school was bartending down there, so I hooked up with him. And I had about 700 bucks in my pocket. So we bought uh, some cocaine and we cut it and we were going to sell it. And I was going to make a little money that way. But nice. we spent that whole night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we spent that whole night cooking it and smoking it. Well, Okay. Yeah, so we turned it into crack and smoked it. And, wow. And, uh, and my friend was like, I mean, he was like, Ed, you had to take it easy. You know, because I kept saying, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Sure. And uh, I think I was trying to kill myself. And he, you know, if I, we you know, smoked it all up. It was gone. I passed out on the floor and uh, woke up the next morning. His carpet smelled like beer and dog poop. Uh, it was, an, you know, five guys living s- ski bums, you know, mm-hmm. just a party animal, kid. Right. And I just thought, I'm starting my life over again. I can't handle it. You know, I just kind of was just like, I can't do this anymore. Here I am again in a strange land starting over. I'm going to have to probably get a job as a busboy and work my way up to waiter, a bartender, or whatever. I can't do this anymore. I called home told Mom, I started crying, and she said, well, let's get you home and into treatment. And I just said, Mom, it's not, it's not that. It's something. Get me home and let's figure out what it is. And she said, okay, I'll send Joe. Joe is my brother who would gotten in recovery. I'll send him down, and uh, he'll fly down and get you and drive back with you. And I thought, great, I can meet him in Reno, which is mm-hmm. the nearest airport, right. and we can hit the casinos before we drive home. <laughs> that was my thought. Uh, never stops. Anyway, um, so they said, she said, I'll call you tomorrow. So she and my brother went to an Al-Anon meeting, told him what was going on, and they said, don't, don't save him. Hmm. Find him a treatment center and tell him that's what he needs. And so my mom couldn't make that call. She heard her son crying on the phone the day before. She thinks he's capable of probably killing himself mm-hmm. and probably the hardest thing she ever did in her life best gift my mom ever gave me said it was no i'm not going to save you and um that's what did it my brother said this is we found a bed for you it's about three miles away they're waiting for you and uh and i said okay i got off the phone i said i guess so it was my last option it felt like and so Which is ironic because an old girlfriend called and said, "Uh, we're down in San Diego. We're playing volleyball on the beach, getting healthy. You should come down here. I know. And that was my other option at that point. And I said, well, I'm I'm with Randy. And she said, oh, you just got to get away from Randy. He's a bad influence. And I Mm -hmm. said, no, I think I'm going to do this. So given the choice of treatment or going down to San Diego. I know. I know. Grace of God. Incredible (laughs) willpower. (laughs) That's how defeated I was. You know, I knew it was another false, you know, dead end. So I went into treatment, and I still didn't think it was my issue, Um, but I went in, and they uh, made me watch Father Martin's Chalk Talks. I Mm -hmm. don't know if you've uh, heard of those, but you can still find them on uh, YouTube. Really? Look up Father Martin Chalk Talks. He's a Catholic priest who is a a recovering alcoholic, and he gives these talks about alcoholism in front of a chalkboard Mm -hmm. with chalk, you know, that old technology. Right, right. And uh, he still – I mean, to this day, his stuff is solid. I mean, really? he really is good. He's funny. He's charming. For me, it was hugely impactful to see a priest with this problem. To right. me, it was just like, oh, my gosh, priest has this, too. Right. To me, that meant something. And I remember I was told to read the bid book, but those first three days was like, oh, my gosh, this explains everything. Hmm. That was that has, you know, a big piece of what drives this ministry that I'm doing now with the Center of Addiction and Faith is how important it is to raise true understanding of what it is we're dealing with. There's so much misunderstanding and misinformation and so much stigma. It's no wonder it's a, it's a bigger problem than it needs to be because we don't even really treat it uh, truthfully. We don't treat it as the, the real thing that it actually is. When I learned what it actually is— I thought, oh my gosh, this is real, and it's and it makes sense, and there's hope for me. Mm-hmm. And it was just this big epiphany, a light bulb moment. So that's for me, awareness is huge. It's really the first step. Is is awareness based on evidence based facts, mm-hmm. and uh, so that um, that can cut through some of the some of the garbage that we have out there. There's just a lot of bad information.
1: To that point, what. With your religious uh, yeah. upbringing, where, yeah, where, yeah. where were you at religiously?
0: You know, I grew up Catholic. We were always marginal Catholics. We were there every week. We were very dutiful, oh, okay. but marginal in terms of uh, our involvement with uh, the church. I uh, went to CCD. Was you know pretty much church? You know, the went through the whole. Routine, but I hated it. Mm. Um, I didn't understand it. I didn't, uh, I as soon as I was old enough, what happened was my sister, my older sister got, fell in with a bunch of born again Christians and she got saved. Mm. And she spent many years trying to get her family to wake up and saved. And she prayed about it. And we just, we were so embarrassed by her. She mm. was just this Jesus freak. And she would carry her Bible around. And whenever she got in the car, she would turn on a Christian radio station. And we were just like, Oh my God, when are you going to get over this? And, um, and she was with a group. She was uh, taught Sunday school. She went to her own church, which is more of a Pentecostal mm-hmm. church, evangelical. And Dad insisted that she still go to – so she went to church twice. So she still had to go Forever. to Catholic church. And I thought, ah, she's nuts. But so she went up with as a, as a youth leader up to Mount Baker, um, the mountains, to go sledding and snowboarding or uh, intertubing. And her and some of the other leaders decided at the end of the day they were going to go down this really steep hill. I think it was called Suicide Hill or Dead Man's Run. Mm. Um, two guys went down ahead of her. One was her boyfriend. And so he was at the bottom with a camera filming. She went next. So it, it, because they packed it down, it was running really fast. So she, she flew out of the trough that they had made with their inner tubes and hit a tree. And it killed her instantly. Uh, The police reviewed the video that the boyfriend took. That was an old Super 8 movie camera. And uh, they estimated 60 miles an hour impact. Yeah, it's just... So she was 19, I think, years old, um, 18, somewhere in there. I was 14. And uh, that was just the biggest impact of my life to that point. Absolutely devastating to the whole family, but to me personally. And started my faith journey, um, wondering you know, what the hell, about God and death and everything. And, and I went to her church looking for what she had found. I read all the cards and letters of her faith and the impact that it had on her. And all I read her diary, and it just like she had found something, and, and it was important. So I went looking for that. I tried to join her church, but I felt like an outsider. Hmm. I never felt like, you know, the, they were, these people were like me at all. I didn't fit in. I tried. And I drifted back to the kids I knew and was most comfortable with. And that was the partiers. Sure. So I had that little, you know, um, but from there on to the time I en- ended up going to treatment, there were many times that I would hit bottom with life, including on Maui and Phoenix and all these other places, that I would I n- I never stop believing in God always. I don't even remember a time in my life that I didn't believe in God. But when I would hit bottom and life got too difficult or too much to bear, I would say, I need to go to church. Mm. And I would go into a church and I would go, I don't f- I don't fit here. Mm. There's nothing here for me. And so I would leave and I can't even count the times that happened, that I would just go to the church looking for help. And there was never nobody reaching out to me. Nobody asked me, you know, welcome or how are you doing or, mm-hmm. you know, just nothing there for me. And I would leave and, uh, and the, and the funny part of that is, is once I got into recovery, I just, you know, once I started getting my head back together and, and getting my life back together, I uh, felt this call again. I need to get back to church, you know, to, to be a part of the church that was always there. And I would go to church in my recovery and have the same experience. Hmm. And I would go to church and I would go, you know, I felt like it was where I was supposed to be, but I didn't feel like it was where I belonged. And I would struggle with that over and over. I tried so many different churches, um, and I, I finally would settle for one that I liked because of the music and um, still never felt any connections with other people there. And, and I, I would always wrestle with feeling like if Jesus were alive today, I feel like he'd be more in the 12-step rooms than he would be in the church. Mm-hmm. And I just really had a hard time with that. And I, I finally got so discouraged that with the help of a sponsor talked it through, and he said, you know, make 12 steps your church now. That was really hard because it was like, I can't give up on God. And it was like, uh, you know, I felt like that was sort of a a no-no or um, it was a a line that I couldn't cross. But it was just, there was just nothing there. So I gave up on the church. I made 12-step groups my church or my faith community. Mm -hmm. And um, it's in those rooms that I see the kinds of people that Jesus reached out to, helped and healed on a regular basis, and it just... Yeah, it's, it's really quite amazing to see what right. happens, uh, which I never see in the church. Even after 25 years as a pastor, <laughs> um,
1: now you are the church. No, I don't am see the it. church, and I don't <laughs>
0: see it. And I try to bring those two worlds together. So sure. I, so I go off to. Uh, so my return back to the church. You asked me about yep. you know the faith part. So I'd given up on the church. A friend and I. I'm on my senior year of college, about to graduate, and in senior spring break. A friend and I had said, "Let's go on spring break. Let's go find God." in the wilderness. And so we got out a map of Washington State and found mm-hmm. the most remote spot we can. And in the middle of the North Cascades uh, National Park, there is just no roads going in there. Mm-hmm. The only way to get in there is to hike, or there's this boat that takes you up and drops you off and leaves you there for three days, a sure. little town called Stahican. So we uh, had this harrowing drive over the mountains that night, got on this boat, and we're chugging up the lake, and it makes this stop, and about 40 people get on. And me and Roger are going, what are all these people we can't have? I mean, we want to find God. God's not going to show up with all these people. (laughs) And so I'm like, where are you guys going? Are you going to Stahican? And they said, no, we're going to Holden Village. And I'm like, what's that? And they said, well, it's a Lutheran camp up in the mountains. And I didn't know anything about Lutherans. I just knew that I was on a boatload of happy Christians. Right. right? right. Which, you know, for me, it was like superficially happy Christians. Sure. You know, I was, you know, my, my, by then I was just like, well, Christianity is just this, you know, facade of, you know, I got Jesus. And right. I, and so I thought, and it wasn't until later that I learned that Lutherans really aren't all that happy. So yeah.
1: <laughs> this was an anomaly. <laughs> right. right.
0: So one of the ladies says, show them the flyer. And she pulls out this flyer and it says, 12-step weekend workshop at Holdenville. Wow. I know. <laughs> so we're trying to get as far from civilization as we can. Right. God we found up, you in the God middle of found nowhere. Us in the middle of nowhere. Just so... Such a God thing.
1: Did you go to that?
0: So they were like... I, I was like, we're in recovery. And they said, well, you got to come with us. And we were like, okay. <laughs> so... And uh, if you know Holden Village at that time of year, um, they drop you off at this dock in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there. Um, This old beat up yellow school bus comes winding its way down the side of the mountain on switchbacks, muddy roads. You pack everything into the back of this bus and it drives you back into the Cascades about 10 miles back and it would go as far as it could before it hit snow. And then we pulled off and we're waiting and there's like, why are we waiting here? And they said, well, we're waiting for the snow machines. These 1940s yeah. bombardiers came down the mountainside. We transferred all the food and luggage into those things, and we went chugging back. And here, this little town in the middle of nowhere, uh, this old copper, um, copper mine that was its own little town. It supported several hundred families at, at one time, Had its own bo- has its own zip code, has its own bowling alley theater, uh, big dining hall, and all these lodges. And the Lutherans own it now and operate it as an adult retreat camp. And here they were doing 12-step stuff, and I thought, finally, a church that understands me. And Mm. so I thought, these Lutherans are okay. Mm. And I became involved there. I I volunteered my first summer out of college there, driving the bus and doing uh, audio AV ministry. And I felt my call to seminary there and met my wife, Karen, there. And so Holden Village has been pretty important in my life. And I went to seminary thinking you know, Holden Village was the Lutheran church. <laughs> so and I did. I came home about three months into seminary and said, I've made a huge mistake. I said the Lutheran churches in Holden Village. They're not talking about spirituality. They're not talking about the twelve steps. They're not talking about brokenness and I mean, you know, they have a theology for it, which I'm grateful for. But it's more talk than it is action, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, well, maybe I'm a pastor that can be about recovery. and mm-hmm. uh, But over all the years, I found that the church is really not interested in the topic. Mm-hmm. And I've been very frustrated by that. So I've just sort of settled with this idea that, well, I'll be a pastor over here, and then I'll do this other work over here. And I was involved with the Fellowship of Recovering Lutheran Clergy, and we've worked over the last 30 years to help pastors in recovery, you know, stay in the ministry and to get their lives back and to, you know, to go through that hard process of growing up and, and getting through this disease, you know, growing, getting well after, you know, what, uh, the disease does to you in the Lutheran church. We say at the beginning of every service, I'm in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a statement of addiction. Right. Absolutely. Now, that's what it—that's addic- Addiction is I am in bondage. I can't free myself. I can't stop doing that thing that harms me Right. and I keep doing it over again and I can't stop it. and I need God's help to help me.
1: Right? You know, I mean, if it just, it's just the foundation of the is, church. <laughs> it is
0: so totally. And so, um, having an understanding of the addictive process, um, would help a pastor not only understand himself better but the people he deals with and to provide spiritual care in a way that, that, that makes sense. I think I can't speak for the other traditions because they all have the same kind of denial around this and unwillingness to face it, but I know in the Lutheran church, we have a hard time with language around uh, spirituality and growing spiritually because of this whole, th- the, the, you know, that we stand on the word grace. And anything else is works righteousness, and so we don't want to say you need to take step one, two, and three, because oh, that's... sure. And you, somehow... You need to
1: do these things right, in order any... to get this. That's kind of against works. grace. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. This works righteousness. But it's like, well, wait a minute, we're not talking about your eternal salvation here. Yeah. You know, uh, that's been done. That's grace. E- eternal salvation got done for you. It was a gift. Right. But how are you going to live in the meantime? Right. And so that's what uh, that's where we don't have very good language in the church. We can't talk about that. Hmm. And I think they're afraid to because they're afraid that people think, you know, they'll turn it into works. I don't know. It is kind of a mystery to me. I think part of it is the fact that I think the church has got this problem. I think our whole society has this problem so bad that it's the same denial that's at work in the attic. Sure. Family systems theory, um, especially in the world of treatment, says uh, they used to say, well, treat the addict and he'll get better. And now they're saying, well, that, unless you treat the system that addict comes out of. So if, if an addict goes off to treatment and you don't treat the family and teach them about this disease and you put that addict back in that family, if they're not fixed, he's going to go right back. The chances of success go way, way down. Mm-hmm. So if they can treat the whole system then uh, the whole system gets well, and the addict has a chance of succeeding. So, if we extend that out to the whole of society, right. um, we keep saying, "Well, let's deal with these, you know, these addicts." Well, what we do is throw them in jail, which, uh, which is crazy because it's like, "Oh, you got cancer? We're going to throw you in jail." Right. And so that's how we deal with it. But the fact is, why don't we deal with a system that creates addicts or that enables addicts? Or, I mean, anyway, there's a, addiction permeates our society so much that. I think we have a hard time seeing it because it means we'll have to look at ourselves. I think
1: filling in chron- chronology a little bit. So you, so that initial treatment, that initial uh, moment was near Reno, right? yeah, or, yes. or somewhere in there, yeah, uh, Lake Tahoe. So, and was that it? Was that? From that point on, you were sober, yeah, clean?
0: No, not quite. Um, so that was in 1985. I went in, and, and the funny thing is, this is how denial works. I went in, in those days, that was a state-funded, uh, it was an old motel that they had turned into a, a, a dry-out center for yeah. drunks. It was state-funded, so it was low budget. In those days, alcohol was just being considered a real disease by mm. the medical and the legal system. And so when I went in there, um, um, I said, you know, I I was checking in and I said, uh, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I guess, or whatever. And I said, I also think I have a drug problem. And they said, well, we don't do that here Mm. because, you know, it was state funded. They are only going to deal with alcoholism, not addicts. So I said, all right, I got the alcohol problem. So in my mind, immediately went, oh, maybe it's just alcohol. And I only use drugs when I drank mostly. And so, so drugs aren't an issue for me. It allowed me immediately to make that move in my mind. Right. And so I was still sneaking pills uh, throughout those first uh, four four or five months that I was there and and afterwards. And then um, February of 1986, I moved home and I knew I was, I knew that I shouldn't have been taking those pills and I was hiding it and I thought I was going to get busted and I was living with all that fear and anxiety and it wasn't good. And I thought I got to come clean. So I moved back to Bellingham. Two of my best friends had just gotten into treatment. And they said, come live with us and we'll all get well together. So I moved up there and I said, I got to confess this. So they took me to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Okay. And I started uh, my recovery on February 28, 1986. About a month ago, that was 35 years. Wow. Yeah. I know. It seems crazy. Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thanks.
1: Yeah, it's a gift. Wow. That's something. And so then you went, uh, then after the Holden experience, you went to...
0: I went off to seminary. Seminary. Yep. And uh, that first year of seminary, I I told you how I I came home and was devastated by the fact that the Lutheran church wasn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's another God thing, because right around that time, I heard about this group of pastors getting together in Chicago for the first time, Mm -hmm. and they were recovering alcoholics, and I thought, I have to go. I have to be there. And I thought, but I'm not a pastor. Do You know, am I – I didn't feel like – I didn't think – when I went to seminary, it wasn't to be a pastor. I just wanted to study God and, and metaphysics and, and know the Bible. Um, I really didn't think I could be a pastor. I thought I burned that bridge. You know, mm-hmm. I did some pretty awful things. And, sure. you know, I wasn't pastor material. Right. But
1: um, he wasn't going to let you in, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no, sorry. I
0: thought, no, yeah. So, <laughs> and, so, and so, I didn't think, you know, who am I to be with these other pastors? But I had to be there, so I drove out there, walked in, and there here were these, you know, thirty guys, mostly, a couple mm-hmm. women, sitting around at a twelve-step meeting, and they were each sharing their stories, and I was hearing stories about pastors waking up in jail with a uh, jailer knocking on the bars going, morning, Padre, you know, mm-hmm. and and I'm like, oh, my gosh, the shame that must have been. And, but walking into that meeting, I thought, oh, these are my people. I'm at home, you know, these, right. these are people who understand me. And and uh, so that was the first formation of the Fellowship of Recovering Lutheran Clergy 30 years ago, and I've been with them Ever since, I've been the director for 18 years, and wow. and they're the ones who ha- are responsible for launching the Center of Addiction and Faith. So wow. now I'm doing the work that I think I've been pre- meant to do all along. So finally. you've
1: transitioned from being a full-time uh, pastor at a church, yep. right? Yep. You're still a pastor, of course. Uh, and yeah. then and, But now you're running this organization. This is your full-time duty now. It
0: is my full time calling. Although I left a full time pay and benefits for, <laughs> for I'm sure.
1: I'm sure for yeah. nothing.
0: But you know, I've I, it it all makes sense now. And I think, you know, if you're new in recovery just hang on. In thirty-five years, there'll be something
1: great for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right around the corner. Yeah, that's right. Just hang in there. <laughs> of course, in that thirty-five years, oh, you have gosh. created a beautiful family. I've got
0: this. Fa- I have yeah. so many things I don't deserve. You're a grandpa now. I'm a grandpa now. I've got this job. I've got this education that I don't deserve. I mean, I've been blessed beyond measure. I can't even begin to count. You know, I have this beautiful home I live in. I can save money. I can, you know, I can, I've been in a a marriage for 30 years now and I just, uh, I marvel at uh, how lucky I am. Mm. I just... uh, I'm just, uh, I say I'm always so grateful that God doesn't give us what we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next
1: for the Center of Addiction and Faith?
0: Well, um, we've got the conference coming up in uh, October. I'm, re- I'm just really excited about that. I'm just amazed by the momentum that I'm feeling with this. I'm having people just all over the country contacting me and saying, I want to be a part of this. Uh, I, we did a webinar yesterday. We had a 407-people register and from that, my calendar just filled with people who said, I want to be a part of this. So mm. the time has come, the church is ready to do this. And it's so needed as we come out of COVID, uh, because the, it was a crisis point before COVID hit. And now you have a, 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 this disease of isolation forced right. all these people home. So people who you know kind of had a drinking problem before and now... You know at home where they don't have anybody watching them they can start drinking at noon now and and people have lost jobs and i mean there's depression there's suicide stuff there's a lot of addiction that are uh, in in many forms just out of control so as we come out of this pandemic there's going to be a lot of need And so I'm grateful that I get to be a part of that. Well,
1: thank you for your
0: work. Thanks. Thanks for your work. I mean, we're kind of doing this together. Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us for your own show. Thank you. It's good to be here. (laughs) You're a good guest (laughs) and a good host.
3: (laughs) My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views opinions or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.